Hey, good morning. Uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 21. This is the last chapter of the book. And while you're turning to John 21, let me share with you an announcement that I'm pretty happy about. Um, and the announcement is this, that this, uh, that next week, May 30th, Sunday, May 30th, we will be meeting in our sanctuary in our own church building for our 10 o'clock service. There will be room both Indoors and outdoors, we're going to set some chairs up out front for anyone uncomfortable with space issues. Um, if you're not one of those people, then please come inside for church back in our old sanctuary. It's been over a year since we've met here on Sunday mornings, and I'm very happy to go back. I'm very happy about this. Uh, what that means for you, if you're watching this, is that this is the last sermon I'm going to give from my desk uh, for the foreseeable future, for a while at least. I will not miss doing two services, one to a camera and one to my church. Um, we will record the sermon, of course, next week, uh, but it won't be live streamed at first, at least. So to get next week's sermon, if you, um, you have to come in person or wait until after service uh, when we'll upload the video online on Sunday evening or Monday morning. Um, also, because it's been a while since we've met here at the church, uh, the building is in need of a little bit of attention, so next Saturday at 8 a.m., that's May 29th, I believe, uh, we're going to have a cleaning day, a work day, uh, just for the morning. It'll just be a few hours in the morning to get things put together nicely so that when we come back on Sunday morning, things will be in order. I am looking forward to seeing you there, and we will finish up the Gospel of John next week, right here. So, let's begin this last chapter in uh, John chapter 21. I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 14. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came into the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. And then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and laid fish on it and bread. Jesus, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. 
This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus, I thank you for, we thank you for these, these times when you reveal, reveal yourselves, yourself to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy on Peter and on the disciples that had abandoned you. We thank you that you have had mercy on us sinners. And thank you that, um, that you care for us so tenderly, even in ways like this with breakfast and, and miracles. Give us understanding of your word. We pray that we as your church would meet with you here in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. The last chapter of John here is really about Peter. Uh, of course, it is about Jesus, as the whole gospel is about Jesus, but the gospel is, as we and as Paul says, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then, then the, if that's true, which it is, then the gospel of John could have easily ended with chapter 20. All those ingredients have already been included. We don't need to have the last chapter. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The disciples witnessed the resurrected Lord. They have received the Holy Spirit. They have been commissioned and sent. You know, that's how Matthew ends. Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have all agreed that this is the message that they needed to get out. And it's probably time to stop writing. You know, write the end and then move on. Write some letters or something, John. But that's not the way John did it. And it, it, it's interesting and encouraging, I think, that we find in John both the most theologically lofty gospel, its top shelf stuff, as well as one of the most, well, one gospel that's, that's the most concerned with the personal. Remember that none of the synoptic gospels include references to themselves except in Luke's brief introduction. But John refers to himself in code, with nicknames and, and secret identities, throughout the book. And while all four Gospels include the essential message of the forgiveness of sins, John spends an extra chapter showing us what it looks like when Jesus restores a sinner. And it is an extra chapter. If you look at the last verse of chapter uh, 20, it concludes the story saying, you know, Jesus did many other things, but these are written that you may believe that he is the Christ and that you may, believing you may have life in his name. And, and that feels like a conclusion, but John keeps writing in order to show you what it means to have a savior like Jesus, what it means to be saved by one like him. The sinner that is restored is Simon Peter. In verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's also known as the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Then it lists the men who were there. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Okay, so you have these seven fishermen, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, the author of the book, and a couple of, of other guys, and I, I love the anonymous disciples. Whenever there's a, a few people there, eyewitnesses that, or, or people that do something cool and we don't get their name, I just, I appreciate the unrecognized faithfulness in, in uh, these men and see it as a beautiful thing. Uh, so they are together in Galilee. What are they doing up there? Well, in, in the last chapter, you see they were still in Jerusalem. Matthew fills in the details for us. They went to Galilee because they were told to go to Galilee. 
Matthew records this event on Easter Sunday morning when the women at the tomb have this conversation with the angels there. And it says in Matthew 28 verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So now they have obeyed. They've gone north to Galilee, where Jesus will appear to them another time. The first time was on Easter Sunday night. The second was eight days later for Thomas. And then now a third time on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But I think it's important to remember that they go to Galilee not because they are retiring somehow from religious life. They had already received the Spirit, been commissioned to go preach the gospel. Um, but they went there in order to see the Lord. And they went to the gospel not to go home and hang up their apostolic hats, so to speak. They went there on the command of Jesus in order to receive the promises of Jesus. I believe this is important for us to notice because there is usually a tone when this chapter is taught, and there, there's usually people who will criticize Peter for wanting to go fishing right here, saying that they went up to Galilee and they were just calling it quits and wondering, well, when is Jesus ever going to come back? That's just not what we see. Um, and there's, there's people that uh, would teach this, this fishing trip of Peter's as if this trip was an expression of his faithlessness. Uh, he's going back on his commitment to Jesus and his call to be a fisher of men. It is notable that when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, they forsook everything, indicating that they had left their careers as fishermen behind them. So you could view, and many do, view this as a moment of backsliding or returning to the world. I suppose that is possible since we don't know the motives of his heart. We won't be able to say for sure, but it would be, and it would be possible to see this as an allegory for a return to worldliness, but I would caution you from reaching too far and saying that Peter here was despairing and, and turning his back on Christ or something like that. Fishing isn't the same as worldliness. Neither is having a day job or night, since that's when they were fishing. They were fishing at night. It's a long reach to come to the conclusion from this text alone that Peter is somehow rebelling or in sin by returning to go fishing. After all, Jesus will tell them, don't do anything until you've received the promise from the Father. So it's not like we should expect Peter to be out preaching a pre-Pentecost sermon or something like that. If fishing was such a bad thing to do, it's hard to understand why Jesus would bless it with such success as he does in this story. We don't see Jesus bless sin. It's not what he does. Peter says, let's go fishing. And the other fishermen don't see any problem with that. And even though I'm somewhat in the minority here, neither do I. And in fact, we, we see a lesson here that's worth learning, I believe. When, when you are waiting for the Lord, waiting for him to deliver on his promise, it's not a bad idea to go about your normal business. And, and, and yes, you should spend time in prayer and seeking the Lord and, and spend time dedicating yourself to the spiritual disciplines and, and wait on the Lord in the spiritual sense. But also, go to work. These guys were fishermen. They fished. 
Charles Spurgeon notes, perhaps if they had not fished at night, Christ would not have given them fish in the daytime. He does not often come to bless idlers. It's okay to go to work. In fact, it was when they were fishing at the command of the Lord in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus is revealed to Simon Peter as someone special. Luke chapter 5 is really the parallel passage of John 21. It's not a retelling of the same event. It's the telling of a previous event uh, that foreshadows the events of John 21. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus sees these fishermen, some of the same that are here in our story, and he uses their boat as a pulpit. He says, push away from the land a little bit, and then he teaches from the boat. After he teaches, he tells them to go fishing, even though they had fished all night without success. But they obey, and they catch so many fish, the nets begin to break. You should be connecting some dots here, having just read the story in John 21. It is in the midst of this miracle, when the boats are sinking and the net is breaking, when Peter makes his first confession. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We'll read this verse again before the end of this sermon. Jesus, his first encounter with Peter is in a, a, a fishing trip. It's on a fishing trip. Could it be that now as Peter waits for the promise to see Jesus again, he is recreating the scene when he first fell down before Jesus in worship? If he wasn't doing it on purpose, God was certainly making his purposes known. Because look what happens. Halfway through verse 3, it says, They said to him, We are going with you also, the other disciples. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. No fish. A whole night of fishing and no fish. Which is what fishing actually is, even in the Bible. It's usually just waiting for nothing. But it seems like this long night of disappointment has been manufactured by Jesus, who gives and takes away, who is about to bless them beyond all that they could ask, think, or imagine. And I want you to realize this. It's obvious that Jesus gives the great success that is coming up in a couple verses, right? Those 153 large fish, that's a present from God to Peter, right? Just by casting the net on the other side, and they get all these fish at once. It's an obvious miracle. But it is no less likely that Jesus, the God who gives and takes away, was also preventing their success for the whole night. We're less comfortable with this kind of divine intervention usually, but it is biblical. He raises up and he puts down. He plants and he uproots. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Please know that your times of dryness of unfruitfulness, of not catching any fish even though you're trying all night long, may be divinely orchestrated. This is not fatalism. This is not me encouraging you to accept defeat or an invitation to despair. I'm wanting to point out to you that at the end of the night, there is something better than fish. In verse 4, it says, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. Now this is a repeated theme. There's a lot of them in this chapter. The disciples did not know. Man, put that on a plaque, 
right? That's something that has been consistent in their experience, wouldn't you say? There was a lot that they didn't know. They didn't know that the man on the shore was Jesus. It was early in the morning light. It was dim. And as we've already seen, Jesus has been hard to recognize for some, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus and even Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So Jesus calls out from the shore, children, have you any food? Now you'd think that being called children would have made some of them aware of what was going on. Jesus called the disciples children on multiple occasions, but that is not the case. They don't get it yet. Uh, you also have to remember that it's likely that most of the disciples were teenagers and Jesus is in his 30s, so perhaps it wasn't as strange to their ears as it is to ours, I'm not sure. And it would probably be better translated boys. You have any food, boys? Which uh, has a less paternal note to it, a greeting that might even be used by working men. But the question he asks is a simple one, and one that would have been common on the shores of the nearby fishing villages, as it is, uh, as common as it is there as it is today in hospitable environments the world over. Jesus asked them essentially, have you eaten yet? You got any food? Have you eaten? And he's making breakfast there on the shore, so he's asking them, like, well, did, you got any food? The question, have you any food? It could, all, it could have sounded to the disciples like a question of, uh, of a merchant, maybe, or just a servant of a house sent to buy the day's food. It's possible that they misunderstood Jesus' question as a request to buy rather than an offer to give. Do you have any food? I'd like to buy some for my family. When Jesus is really asking, do you have any food? I have some here. Would you like some? If this misunderstanding did take place, they would not be the last to misunderstand Christ's question in this way. The world over, people encounter Jesus in one way or another and mistake his grace for law. We read of the righteousness of God as a list of demands and not the fullness of the gospel, which is a receipt of demands that have been met. When Christ encounters the world, he brings breakfast. He's not here to buy anything from you, as you have nothing that you could possibly add to his supply. He comes to give what you cannot possess any other way. So Jesus asks, have you any food? And they confess, no. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Okay, so when Jesus says this, alarm bells should definitely be going off, right? The cast the net on the other side of the boat trick, that's already been done. Jesus did this miracle before. That first time he called them to become fishers of men in Luke chapter 5, but they didn't catch on yet. They don't know it's Jesus yet. Perhaps they start to remember the last time, though, when someone had made such a ridiculous suggestion to fish out of the other side of the boat. Perhaps they start to remember the nature of that day when they were first called to their ministry. Now, I have a suggestion for you. If you have felt a call of God to ministry, to something specific, and it's been a while... I want you to consider two things. One, Jesus recreates the initial calling of the disciples. He recreates a miracle, something he, he rarely ever does. And he does this in order to establish these men in the ministry that he has for them, that he has already called them to years before. That's one thing I want you to consider. Second thing, be open to the idea that today as you read this, as you listen to this, God is also reminding you of a calling 
that you have temporarily set aside. Jesus is repeating his call to the disciples through this this metaphor, this living metaphor of the fish. And, and maybe he's doing the same to you. And look what happens. They, they do as they're told and they, they are unable to draw the net in because there are so many fish. They can't even lift the net. Let's reverse that, that word from Job, right? The Lord takes away and the Lord gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon again, he says, Christ's presence, if he would but come among us in the fullness of his strength, would do so much more for us than anything that we have ever seen, yet that we should be as much astounded by the increase as the apostles were by the two great drafts of fishes. What the disciples missed in the sound of his voice or the strange command to fish on the other side of the boat, they realize now in the blessing. James writes, every blessing is from above from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This blessing turns the lights on and they see that Jesus is the same. He's the same as he was when they first met him that day. The goodness of God here leads to repentance and John knows this blessing was clearly divine and Peter knows the truth of turning every blessing back to praise. This is coming up. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But there's another story in Luke where... Jesus heals ten lepers, and only one of them goes back to Jesus to say thank you. Peter kind of reminds me of that leper here, who is, who is so eager after, the re, after receiving the blessing of God to go to God. This is an example for us, to be sure. He knows, Peter knows what he had lost, and he knows who found him. Verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. And we have that same kind of dynamic between Peter and John as we saw uh, in the resurrection, right? John gets to the tomb first, but Peter goes into the tomb first. He rushes in. John realizes it's Jesus on the shore, but it's Peter who jumps into the water. Once again, we have an echo of Luke 5 when the disciples forsook all and followed him. Peter leaves his boat, his nets, his friends, and he jumps into the water and he swims to Jesus. Now listen, I think we would all agree that we wish we were more mindful of what the Lord was doing. You, you know that you miss things, right? I know that I'm ignorant of where he is and what he's doing. And, and we often see the Lord more through the rearview mirror saying, Oh, God did that. Oh, that, that was the Lord. And that, that common theme that runs through the Gospels, the disciples did not know, it's still going strong in his followers today. But when the reality of God gets through your thick skull, it is not too late to jump headfirst into the water. Yeah, they missed it. They didn't know it was Jesus. They missed a lot of things. For the last three years, they've been missing things. For our whole lives, we missed things. But when Peter realized it's the Lord, there was nothing that was going to prevent him from literally jumping headlong and swimming to Jesus. This is the lesson of the life of Peter. It's not too late. Peter is thought to be the oldest one of the disciples, far too old to be a disciple of a rabbi, which was really for kids, for teenagers at the latest. But when Jesus called him to be a fisher of men, he followed. It was not too late for Peter. Peter goes anyway. Peter has sinned more than any of the other disciples, except Judas. 
He has denied the Lord three times, and it's not too late for Peter. And now after the resurrection, Peter finds himself fishing again, remembering perhaps the first time Jesus called him to ministry. And now Jesus comes again, giving another chance, a replay of that first day, and Peter can hope it's not too late for him. He jumps in head first. He forsakes all. And I'll invite you to the, the obvious personal application of this message. I'll invite you to personalize this passage to consider that the call you received and then perhaps ignored has not necessarily expired. I would invite you to consider that even though you're not John and you're not the first to notice what Jesus is doing and you're not always the quickest on the uptake, it's still not too late. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I would even argue that it's better to be Peter than John in this way. It's better to be the second to notice, but the first to jump. Last week I mentioned that all believers are commissioned believers. You are sent. May I encourage you to be less cautious and jump. There's this common Christian talking point, uh, this idea of stepping out of the boat. Usually the idea of stepping out of the boat is brought up when we talk about Peter walking on water to Jesus. That's all well and good, but stepping out of the boat will probably look more like this, jumping in and swimming to where he is. No miracles, necessarily. Just a wholehearted devotion to spend all your remaining energy on getting to where your Savior is. As I mentioned before, this chapter is really about the restoration of a sinner named Peter. And it's been very clear that it's an intentional replay of Peter's first call in Luke chapter 5 when Peter came to Jesus, or sorry, Peter's first confession, when Peter came to Jesus the first time after the, the great catch of fish, this is what Peter did. Luke chapter 5 verse 8, we read it once, let's read it again. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And much has happened since that first event. Now things are different. Peter's happy to see Jesus, but it's also, um, it's very much the same as that first time because Peter knows his own sin more now than he did three years ago when Jesus first called him. I believe Peter is coming to Jesus in much the same spirit and humility. This might also offer an explanation why he put his coat on to go swimming, which is sort of backwards from the way most of us would do it. Throughout scripture, when sinful man encounters a holy God, he seeks a covering. Moses covers his face at the burning bush. Elijah puts his mantle over his head when he hears the still small voice. And Peter puts his clothes on to go swimming to Jesus. He is still aware, more aware now, of his sins. And this is one of the results of walking with Christ. The more he brings you in, and the more he makes you holy, the more aware you are of your lack of holiness. The more aware your sins, the more aware of your sins you become. But Jesus is near to that kind of person. And just like he goes out of his way for someone like Thomas, defeating his doubt with his presence, Jesus intentionally pursues Peter to restore him to the place where he had been called. Of course, Jesus has always been intentional about pursuing Peter. He told Peter in the upper room, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. 
Jesus is also intentionally pursuing you, and he prays for you too, ever living to make intercession for you. It was Peter in particular that the angel sent the women to tell of his resurrection. In Mark 16, verse 7, it says, Go to the disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Jesus is intentionally pursuing Peter. Look at verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, where they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Pause there for a second. Uh, 200 cubits uh, is about 300 feet. This is how far uh, Peter swam to come into Jesus. It's just kind of cool to think about that detail. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and Jesus, and can't read at all, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So the details in verse 8 kind of matter for something that's coming up. Notice this. In verse 6, it said that there were so many fish that the nets were overloaded. <clears throat> they could not draw it in. You've got seven fishermen, and they couldn't lift the net. Remember that. So they tow it in. Uh, they take the small boat, and they drag the net with the fish in it. Remember that. When they get to shore, Jesus has some breakfast waiting for them. I wonder if Jesus caught the fish himself. Or if there's a multiplying of fish and bread again. Or if he just created the fish out of nothing. Those are all real options for how this story goes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of flashback going on here. Lots of pieces of the story that are being gathered up in this scene. Bread and fish have already been a lesson for the disciples. After feeding the 5,000, the disciples gathered up 12 baskets full of food. They had nothing, then Jesus does something, and then they have all they need. That lesson is being repeated here. The disciples went fishing, they had nothing. Then Jesus did something, and now they have more than they could ever need. Could it be that Jesus, having repeated their call with the catching of the fish, is now also reminding them of the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000? What did Jesus say the day after that miracle? John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Very similar to the call from fishers to fishers of men. Um, Jesus had sent Peter fishing on another occasion too, when uh, they owed taxes, right? Jesus sent Peter to go fishing and told him the fish would, uh, he would catch would have a coin in its mouth and you would pay uh, for both of them. So the supply, God's supply towards these men has been displayed in fish and in bread before on a few occasions. You also have a fire of coals. Now a fire of coals, this may not seem like much, you've got to cook your fish somehow, but a fire of coals is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, both by John, the, first one, or the second one really is here. The first is when Peter warms himself with the enemies of Christ. When he denied him for the second time, Peter was warming his hands, warming himself around a fire of coals. Jesus has built a, another fire for Peter with better company. And he's inviting him into an environment that mirrors Peter at his lowest, once more in order to restore Peter. Don't forget that you have Jesus, resurrected King and Lord, defeater of sin and death, serving breakfast. The Son of Man came to serve. He had told his disciples that there would come a time when there would be a feast, that the Lord of the feast would serve the guests. Jesus here, serving them breakfast, is a hint and a reminder 
of that great banquet to come. So Jesus tells Peter, go get some of the fish you just caught. Now, some of the fish would be like one or two or a few of these fish, but look what Peter does instead. We'll just read through the end of our section to verse 14. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, remember the details once more. I told you to remember some things. They caught so many fish that seven of them couldn't lift it. Now Jesus says, go get some of the fish you just caught. Peter goes by himself and drags the net filled with fish to land. And it mentions once more that the fish he had caught were large and that it would seem to be so much that the net should have been ripped, but it, it's notable that it did not. Now, I think there's, a, 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 there's more than one miracle in this chapter. There's the miracle of catching the fish, and then there's at least two more. There's the miracle here. Jesus preserves the net, and the greater one, is, and we'll see later in the chapter, Jesus preserves Peter. We have no idea how much this weighed. We don't know how big the net was or how big the large fish were. Um, there's a video of people pulling out fish um, videos. You can look on YouTube of people catching fish upwards of 50 pounds from Galilee. It's unusual. Um, it's extremely rare, but there's a, there's a fish that weighed 70 pounds that they pulled out of Galilee. So it's, it's, it's worth noting there are some big fish there. Um, but these fish were large. Um, John, who was a fisherman too, thought it was worth writing down that the net didn't break. They're kind of surprised that the fish didn't break the net. And Peter brings it in himself. John doesn't just mention this to say, wow, Peter was strong, big guy. He's showing that Peter's strength is given to him by Christ. Peter the fisherman, who would be made fisher of men, is being shown here as a sort of parable. His fishing trips have always foreshadowed his evangelistic ministry. Peter the fisherman becomes a fisher of men. Christ gives him great success in both of these fishing ventures. Peter would bring in a supernatural amount of souls just a few weeks from this time. On Pentecost, the net will be cast. Peter will bring in 3,000 souls. This is too large for anyone, but Christ preserves the net, and Christ preserves Peter. Now, all of this is leading up to Peter's conversation with Jesus that we'll get into next week, where Jesus tells Peter to feed my sheep. But before that heart-to-heart -heart conversation takes place, Jesus makes clear that he's still reaching out to Peter. And Peter makes it clear that he is still intent on pursuing Jesus, on forsaking all, on bringing the whole net of fish. Jesus, do you want a few fish? I'll bring you 153. Are you on the shore? I'll leave my boats and my friends and the, the fish and I'll swim the whole way to you. Peter had fallen and Christ had pursued him. We sin, and Christ pursues us. Peter was wondering for sure if, he, if, if it was too late for him, but it wasn't. If you're wondering if it's too late for you, it's not. Christ will remind you, and he may be reminding you this now, that he has called you to things, and his gifts and callings are irrevocable. 
His strength can still be made perfect in your weakness. And when Christ restores, not only can he give far more than you thought you had the capacity for, like Peter's net full of fish, but also provide you with the strength to bring it to shore. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the mercy that you have on sinners like us and how uh, you supply for all of our needs according to your riches and glory and also that you provide us with the strength and with your spirit that is essential for doing the work of ministry. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for your church here in North Fork and ask you to bless it abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.